All right, so now we're done with all the goofiness. Now it's going to reduce the regular boring sermon. Um, so here's the thing. The reason why that we do focus on Father's Day and make a big deal out of it, the reason we focus on Mother's Day and make a big deal out of it in our culture is because the other days of the year, we totally take our parents for granted, right? That all of us who have parents know that you know, we just assume they're going to be there. We assume they're going to take care of us. When we're kids, we assume they're going to feed us and clothe us and house us and do all those kind of things. We tend to take our parents totally for granted. But on one day a year, at least in our culture, we are supposed to stop and we're supposed to notice dads and we're supposed to realize what a great thing it is to have a dad and how much our dads bring to our lives and we're supposed to be thankful, right? So here's what I want to do. I know we did this. Um, I have no more gifts for you, but just to help me out, I want the dads again to stand up for a second. If you're a dad, go ahead. I know you thought I did not come to, to church for exercise, but stand up again. We're not going to clap for you. You've already been clapped for, but here's what I want to do. All of you guys are dads. Um, I want you to remain standing if you're a perfect dad. Everybody else sit down. Nobody's standing. Because we're all in the same boat, aren't we? we? Those of us who are dads are imperfect dads. And all of us had imperfect dads. Some of us didn't even have our dads in our lives. Some of our, our dads passed away. Some of our dads were abusive or mean or, or just uh, cold and distant. Like, none of our dads are perfect. And none of us who are dads today are perfect either. The sad truth is that when it comes to fathers, we all have the same experience. Fathers are imperfect. So what happens usually is that on Mother's Day, pastors preach encouraging messages to moms and, and sort of thank them for all that they do and talk about how wonderful moms are. And when Father's Day comes around, what we're tempted to do as pastors is we're tempted to kind of correct the dads and chastise the dads and try to tell them to be better dads. So if you're a dad here today, I have good news for you. This is not one of those sermons. I'm not here to tell you that you're dropping the ball and you need to do a better job and if you were just a better dad and all that kind of stuff. But I do want to remind us that every one of us is in the same boat in that we are imperfect and we have been imperfect fathers and we had imperfect fathers. Um, but on Father's Day, at least today, I'm going to ask you to imagine something. Imagine, if you will, a perfect father. Imagine a father that makes no mistakes. Imagine a father who's always there. Imagine a father who, who is always loving. Imagine a father who has perfect wisdom. Imagine a father who, who never leaves. Anybody see where I'm going with this? There's a dad like that, isn't there? But just one. Wouldn't it be amazing to be loved that way by our fathers? But in 1 John chapter 1, it's uh, chapter 3. Take your Bibles, go to 1 John chapter 3. If you haven't already guessed, that's where we're going to be. During this uh, Summer of Love series, we've been going verse by verse through the book of 1 John. Don't get caught in the Gospel of John, which is the fourth book in the New Testament, all the way to the back, the, um, 1 John. And we're in 1 John chapter 3, and I love it those times, especially when we're preaching passage by passage, verse by verse through a book. Um, it's amazing how sometimes... God brings us to just the right passage for just the right time. And we didn't plan this this way, 
But this is a verse and a passage that is meant to remind us how great our Father is. So I want you to just follow along. Let's see. Uh, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called the children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we'll be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself, just as He is pure. I love that first verse of chapter 3. And, and actually, when I was young, I memorized this in the King James Version, right? A lot of you know it in the King James Version. We used to sing a song about it in the King James Version. And, and in the King James, which I actually rarely like the King James better, but in this case I do, because it says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has given unto us, that we should be called children of God. See, in the, in the more modern American translations, we lose sort of that behold part. And, and when you look it up in the Greek, by the way, you're eating bacon. Yeah, you're not even a dad. You, that was my bacon I gave to you. gave to your wife? Dude, you... Wow. Wow. Okay. Uh, Vanessa? Could you make me some bacon sometime and bring it to me? He was just supposed to hold that for me for later, but now as long as you're enjoying it. Anyway, was I saying something from the Bible? Okay, 1 John chapter 3, right? Vanessa's always interrupting. 1 John chapter 3. Um, he says, behold, and when you read it in the Greek, it's there. It, it's like in the Greek, there's this strong emphasis, and, and, it, and there's a Greek word that basically says, um, hey, look at that. That's basically how he says in the Greek, oh my gosh, look at that. And the way I was thinking about this, and I know I'm just weird, but imagine you're sitting around with some friends on your patio at night, and you're just enjoying an iced tea in the summer night, and all of a sudden you notice coming right over your roof lights, and there's a UFO that is hovering over your backyard, and you're the first one to see it. What would you do? You'd go, Look! oh my gosh, what is that? Look at that. And every, you would draw everybody's attention to it, right? Because it's shocking, it's astonishing, and it grabs your attention. And you'd be going, wow, I've never seen anything like this. That's the emphasis of the Greek word. He, he says, to stare intently with wonder. That's what that Greek word means. Guys, we need to stop and go, wow, the love of God. It's amazing, the love of God. I never knew there was such a thing. I've never seen anything like it. I've never heard of anything like it. It's absolutely beautiful. It's absolutely overwhelming, the love of God. That's what he's saying. Look at this love of God that has been bestowed upon us or granted to us that we would be called children of God. It's an astonishing Thing. It's as if John is saying, you know, there's something happening here that is absolutely amazing. Don't miss it. No matter what you've been thinking about, no matter what you've been looking at, no matter what has your attention, he's saying, hey, everybody, give me your attention because I'm going to tell you about the God of the universe and how he loves you with an unchangeable love, how he loves you with an undeniable love, how he loves you with an unbreakable love, how he loves you with an undying love, how he loves you with a perfect love, how he loves you with a selfless love. The God of the universe loves you. Oh, 
It's astonishing. You've never seen anything like it. The perfect father loves you and me with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. And whatever kind of father you have had, and whatever kinds of daddy issues you deal with, and whatever kind of father you have been, it is time on this Father's Day to stop and to rejoice and to exult because we have a heavenly father who is perfect and he loves us with all his might. That is good news. Do you get what he's saying here? You and I are loved by a perfect heavenly father with a perfect love that is never, ever going to be taken away from us. Now, if you don't get pumped up about that, then your pump is broken. This is a a reason for excitement. It's a reason for joy. Because here's the thing. We don't deserve to be loved like that. There's nothing we've done to earn that kind of love. In fact, it's quite the contrary, isn't it? God loves us so much that for everyone who accepts his offer of grace, his love and forgiveness are poured out that we actually become sons of God. And you know what? There's a million different ways to illustrate this that you're very familiar with. Because if you grew up and you saw Disney movies or listened to fairy tales or Aesop's fables or any of this kind of stuff that we teach our kids, this story is found over and over and over and over again. Take, for instance, the the frog prince, right? It's this picture, there's a curse, and this prince is actually a frog, and he's living like a frog, and he's in a swamp, and, and he's on a lily pad and he's eating bugs and this is his life. And it's hopeless and it's helpless and there's nothing he can do. There's no way he can restore himself to royalty. He's a frog. He can't even talk. He can't even do anything except just live the life of a frog. But along comes one who loves him and the kiss transforms him and makes him royalty. Beauty and the Beast, Right? There's a curse that falls upon this prince and he becomes this hideous beast and there's nothing he can do and the only way for the spell to be broken is through love and one has to come and love him and that love sets him free and turns him back into a prince. Sleeping beauty, she's she's in this perpetual state of sleep until a prince comes along and loves her and his love wakes her up. Um, Snow White, she eats a forbidden fruit, and because she eats the forbidden fruit, she falls under a curse, and now she lays in this, in this state of, of suspended animation, not really, a, not really dead, but certainly not alive, until one comes along and loves her and kisses her, and that kiss awakens her, and she returns to life. The story is told over and over and over and over. We're the frogs. We get that, right? And And God says, I'm going to make you royalty because of my love. We are all called children of God. And we're not just called children of God. But verse 1 tells us that we actually are children of God. Now, I'm talking about Christians here. I'm talking about those who he calls beloved, ones who have accepted the grace of God and have a personal relationship with Jesus. He says, you are, in fact, children of God. It's not just a name. It's not just a metaphor. It's not just something we say to be nice. But we actually are children of God. Now, here's what I'm up against today. Most of you already know this. You, you've heard it before. 
a lot of you would say, yeah, you know, six years old in Sunday school, I, I learned this. God loves me. I get it. I, he, he makes me a child. I understand I could be a child of God. And, and we're used to it, and it's really basic stuff, right? And that's the problem. That's the problem that John is addressing. That's why he starts out with this big behold word and goes, hey, wait a second, guys. We're just cruising along. And it's kind of funny as we read through 1 John, we get through chapter 1 and 2, and he's been teaching us stuff, and he's been admonishing us, and he's been encouraging us, and he's been telling us all about how we need to be people who love. And then it's almost as if as we get to chapter 3, it's almost as if in the middle of his writing, he just stops and he takes a deep breath and he goes, oh my gosh. God is amazing. God's love is incredible. And he just takes a minute to just like exalt God. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. And he wants us to see that we have become accustomed to the love of God so much that we don't even stop and appreciate it. And it's like Father's Day. We're used to our dad's. Half the time, they drive us crazy, but, you know, they provide and they take care of us and they do all of these kinds of things and we don't really notice so much and we have to put a day on the calendar to go, hey, wait a second, our dads are kind of special. This is the Father's Day of 1 John, where he goes, hey guys, stop for a second, remember this, your father loves you. He loves you immensely. And some of us have forgotten what it's like to be a frog. And we've forgotten the hopelessness and the lostness and the inability to save oneself. And we may have reached the point where we're no longer blown away by the fact that God actually came into the swamp and got us and made us new. Some Christians I know are spiritually spoiled. <laughs> we're just, God just has given us and given us and given us and given us what we want, given us what we need, takes care of our every need to the point where the only time we ever talk to God is to ask him for more. Man, if your children were like that, wouldn't that be sad? Some of us, some of us know kids that are so spoiled that they got the latest and greatest of everything and we don't even, they don't even notice. All they know is they want more. Some of us come to God that way. God, give me more. Give me more. Or God, how could you let this happen? Or God, why wasn't I given this? And we don't stop and just go, oh, it's amazing to be called a child of God. That's why John tells us just stop for a minute and stare with wonder at the love of God. We who were once dead in our trespasses and sins have been made alive together with Christ. We who were once enemies of God have been called the children of God. God broke the curse. Don't forget how serious the curse is. Don't forget that apart from God, the great reward of life would be death. And then judgment and second death. That's who we were before God kissed us. And I want you to look at the last part of verse 1 there, chapter 3, verse 1, the last sentence there. It says, for this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. There's something we need to realize. Um, when you go from being a frog to being a prince, it blows your mind. You're amazed by it. But don't expect the other frogs to be amazed. Don't expect the other frogs to understand. 
And, and I, I'm treading lightly here because I, I'm not implying, as I use the term frogs to describe people who don't know Jesus, I'm not talking about that. I'm not using that in a negative connotation. I'm just talking about those who need to be transformed. And that since we used to be frogs, we're so blown away that we have now become children of the king. But a whole lot of our frog friends don't understand. And he says, you know what? That's to be expected. He says, um, the world does not know us because it didn't know him. That's to be expected. Um, I remember when I was in high school, I, I came to know Jesus right as I was heading into my freshman year. And, and my, my introduction to Jesus was radically life-changing for me. Like everything about me changed and and I just became somebody who was so on fire for Jesus. I was so blown away. I was so deep in the swamp that to find God, you know, coming into the swamp and getting muck all over him in order to lift me out of the muck, in order to kiss me and put his love on me and make me a child of the king, it absolutely blew my mind. And I started telling my friends, and you know what? They looked at me like I had three heads. And I said, oh, you wouldn't believe what God has done for me. And they said, well, you know, that's good for you. And I'll never forget, my, my whole life up until I came to Christ was, was built around becoming a great basketball player. That's what I cared about. That was my life. That was my interest. It was my ticket to college. I had a complete plan in place, written out and pasted to my wall about how I was going to get to a full scholarship at UCLA and play on the national championship team. That's what my life was about. And I spent every day in the gym and I worked out and I worked and worked and worked on my game and I advanced and I got better and better and better. And I got to the point where I'm on the all-star teams and I'm, and I'm getting the championships and I'm doing all that kind of stuff. Now I'm in high school. And now I know Jesus. And now I'm getting involved in uh, church and ministry. And I get this invitation to be a part of a, a ministry team. But the only thing is that on this ministry team, uh, you have to come to a staff meeting every Tuesday night at 6. I remember it. I remember the date and the time. Every Tuesday night at 6, it's a commitment. It's non-negotiable. If you're going to be on the ministry team, you have to come to this meeting every Tuesday night at 6. Only one problem basketball practice didn't get over in time. And half the time, you know, coach keeps you late because somebody messed up and you got to run and you got to do all that kind of stuff. And so I had to go to my coach and I sat down with him after practice one day and I said, coach, um, you know how I've been talking about Jesus and how God has changed my life. And he kind of rolls his eyes and goes, yes, yes, Doug, I've heard all about it. And I said, well, here's the thing. I'm involved in this church and I've been invited to be a part of this ministry team, but to be on this team, I'm going to need to cut out a basketball practice about a half an hour early, just on Tuesdays. Now, I'll come early, I'll stay late on other days, whatever it takes, but I just need your permission to leave a half an hour early on Tuesdays. And I think he had already had it up to here with my Jesus talk, and so he decided to call my bluff because he knew what a priority basketball was, and so he said... I don't know what makes you think that this team can't make it without you. Do you think you're indispensable around here? And he gave me that whole speech, that coach's gift. You know, it's all about a team. It's not all about you. I said, coach, I understand. I just need to be a half an hour early on Tuesdays. And he said, well, listen, either you're committed. To, you could be committed to this team or you could be committed to God. But apparently you can't be committed to both. And I went to my locker and I got my uniform 
and I brought it to his office, and I laid it on his desk, and I thanked him for the opportunity, and that was my last basketball game. I, I don't tell you that so you can pat me on the back. Here's the point. He doesn't understand. Hey, there was no way for him to get it. it was, his mind was boggled. He said, how could you possibly choose something like that over something like this? He knew my goals. He knew what I had set my life out to do. He had been helping me get there. And he absolutely didn't understand. And Jesus says that there's going to be people who simply don't understand and they don't know us because they don't know the Father. And he gets into this, uh, Jesus himself gets into this. Turn to John chapter 15 now. I know you're in 1 John, so go to the Gospel of John, back toward the beginning of your New Testament, after Luke and before Acts, and go to John chapter 15. I want to show this to you in a couple of places. In John chapter 15, Jesus speaks about this, and we're going to pick it up in 15, 18. John 15, 18, if the world hates you, he said to his followers, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep your word. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. Now flip back to John chapter 8, just a few chapters to the left. And in John chapter 8, he's talking about the same topic. And he gets into this, and we're going to see it in verse 19, John 8, 19. So they were saying to him, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. And then he keeps talking about it, but skip down to verse 42. And here's what he says. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God, but I have not even come of my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It's because you cannot hear my word. Verse 44, you are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And he goes on. See, what he's trying to tell us is not that every single person in the world's going to hate you because you're a Christian. Let's not have this martyr complex that we're carrying around. But he is saying, you're not going to fit anymore. People are not going to understand. And if you actually live for Jesus, you're going to get mocked. And you're going to get taken advantage of. And there's going to be a whole lot of people who have no idea why you would choose to live that way. And he tells us why. He says, because they don't know my father. If we had the same father, they would get it. But we don't have the same father. Instead, they're listening to the father of lies. So we have to understand, this is not a way of judging people who don't know Jesus, but to just actually have compassion because to say, you know what, you used to be a frog and, and they're still in the swamp. And when people don't know the Father, they're not going to understand. And, and, you know, let's just clear up a myth here. He, he talks about children of the Father and children of the Father of lies. So, so let's clear up a myth. You know, for too long, people have said, well, you know, all people are children of God. Jesus said, not true. 
Not everybody is a child of God. And, that, and one of the reasons I want to point that out is because, again, we should step back and go, behold, what an incredible love that we would be called children of God. Because let me just ask you a question. Do you deserve to be a child of God? No, me either. It's amazing. And so instead of judging those who have yet to come to a knowledge of the Father, we need to love and have compassion and grace toward people who are still struggling with that. It is a big deal to be called a child of God. That's a fact. And they don't understand the truth, so they often strike out against those who stand for the truth in one way or another. And that's exactly where we would be if he hadn't kissed us in the swamp. It's a good thing to stop and remember who we were and to stop and stare at God and be amazed at what he has done. But I have good news. Verse 1 tells us that we are children of God, and you think, well, what could be better than that? It actually gets better as you keep reading. Go back to 1 John. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 3, and I want to read to you again verses 2 and 3. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. In other words, the best is yet to come. It's, it's amazing if He just said, I'm going to make you my child. You're going to have access to things the world doesn't have access to, like hope. Things like joy, things like peace. You're going to have access to that in this life. But He says it's not just for this life that this life continues forever. And it has not yet appeared what we will be. So what we are is sort of struggling in the process of being transformed to becoming like Jesus. But the day's coming when we're going to be like Him. See, the most amazing thing about heaven is not what we'll get there. The most amazing thing about heaven is not what we get. Even though we get some awesome stuff, Make no mistake, being a child of God means that there's an inheritance. And, and the scripture talks about this a lot, that when we get to heaven, there are rewards. And the scripture says, do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where rust and moth destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but instead store up for yourself treasures where? In heaven, where moth and rust and thieves have no impact, right? Tre store up for yourself treasures. There's treasure in heaven. He talks about, Jesus said, I, I go ahead of you in order to make a place for you. And he talks about mansions. In my Father's house, there are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. And the, and the scripture describes heaven in all these glorious ways. One of them is streets of gold. And every time I think about that, I'm like, wow, imagine that. Imagine such wealth that you could pave the streets with gold. And I don't know... I don't know if there's literally streets of gold in heaven or if it's just a metaphor, but, but here's what I know. I'm not sure if it speaks more of the, uh, the richness of heaven to say that the streets are paved with gold or if it speaks more of the worthlessness of gold <laughs> that, that we just chase after. And he goes, you know, in heaven, gold is like asphalt. We're just, it's nothing because in heaven, there's amazing things we get. But the great news is the most amazing thing about heaven is not what we get. The most amazing thing about heaven is who we will become. 
That's what he's talking about. He, go, go with me to the book of Romans. Um, I love Romans. I particularly love chapter 8, and I want to go to Romans chapter 8 again. And I want us to look at this passage in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 14, okay? Romans 8, 14. This is Paul writing. Here's what Paul says. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Now, does that sound familiar? No longer slaves to fear. I am a child of God. Where have I heard that? We sang it just 20 minutes ago. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. And because of that, we get to call him Abba. It says Abba, Father. And, and this was so cool. Christy and I were at this event at a big uh, uh, arena last week. And, and as we're leaving, we're you know, going out like cattle. And there's thousands of people trying to get to the doors. You guys know what that's like. And, and there's a family right next to us. And everybody's pressed up against each other. And I noticed this family. And I noticed that they're Jewish. And the reason I notice that they're Jewish is because the dad has a yarmulke and his little boy has a yarmulke. And there they are at this event and the little boy began to get separated a little bit from his parents because of the crowd and everybody pushing in. And all of a sudden I heard the little boy cry out, Abba, Abba, Abba. And his dad turned around and went back to him. Abba means daddy. It's what only your children get to call you, Right? He says, because we're children of God, we get to call him daddy. The spirit himself testifies, verse 16, with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed. Now, this is written by Paul. Did he know anything about suffering? beaten, whipped, shipwrecked, stoned, left for dead, run out of town, his reputation dragged through the mud again and again and again. And Paul says, when I look at all of the suffering that this world can throw at you, it doesn't compare to the glory that is to come. Wow, what is this glory that is to come? Verse 19, for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. That's us. We're the sons of God, right? We're going to be revealed. There's going to be a, a, um, a sort of um, uh, coming out, yeah, a revealing where suddenly it'll be shown who we really are, an unveiling, if you will. For the creation, verse 20, was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. See, there's a glorification coming. And he says that as children of God, not only are we joint heirs with Jesus, but it has not yet been shown what we will become. And nothing compares to that glory. Listen, I've said this before. I'm going to say it again. The Christian life is not nearly so much about where you are or even who you are as it is about where you're going and who you're becoming. 
It's about where you're going and who you're becoming. The call of Jesus is a call to a relational journey. It's a call to walk with Him, right? What did He say to the fishermen in the boats as He walked right up to the edge of the shore of the Sea of Galilee and He called out to those men in the boats? Here's what He said, follow me, that's where you're going, and I will make you fishers of men, that's who you're becoming. As you follow me, you will be transformed into the people that I want you to be. So as we get called into this relationship with God, if we fix our eyes on Him, John chapter 3, verse 3, if we fix our eyes on that hope, then He will purify us in that process. That's how we become who it is He wants us to become. The Christian life is a journey that we take with God. And it's not going to end when you get to heaven. Don't think that you're going to get to heaven and you're going to go, hey, I'm, I'm fully done now. I'm glorified. There's no more growing for me to do. It says we will be like Him because we'll see Him like He is, right? We'll see Him as He is. What that means is that like, he, like Him, we will be glorified. It does not mean we will become Him, right? Only God, for example, is all-knowing. We'll never be all-knowing. Only God is all-powerful. Only God is sovereign, right? All these things that are only true of God, we're not going to become God, but we're going to become the mature version of us, and we're going to be seen in the likeness of God. That's 1 John chapter 3, verse 3. When we fix our hope on Him, we are doing our part in cooperating with God in the transformation process. Of course, John is not saying that we make ourselves pure in this process. He's saying that as we cooperate with God by fixing our eyes upon Him and walking in that hope, God will complete the purification process. And he's saying that those of us who have been saved by His grace need to keep our hearts and our eyes focused on God. That's why he says, behold, don't forget, listen, I know there's a bunch of stuff in this world that is going to demand your attention. I know there's a bunch of stuff in this world that is going to say, this is better for you than God. Listen, nothing is better than God. I don't care what the world has to offer. There's nothing that compares to the love and the grace and the mercy and the kindness and the hope and the peace that can only be found in Jesus Christ himself. As children of God, we get to know that. We get to experience that. That's why he says, behold. In other words, John is saying that for the Christian, every day should be Father's Day. Every day we should stop and focus our eyes and go, what an incredible thing it is to have God as my Father. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we would be called children of God. Happy Father's Day. Let's stand and pray together. Heavenly Father, Abba, Daddy,